0: Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks.
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Car Chat Podcast and with me today I have Darren Turner. Hello.
2: Hi sir, how are you?
0: Not bad, not bad. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about sort of
2: who you are and what you do? Uh, Yeah, Darren Turner. Uh, I'm one of the uh, works drivers at Aston Martin. I've been with the, the team since, well, since they started racing in 2005 and I've been a professional driver pretty much. I'd say since '99 is when I've got my first paycheck. So since, so that's whatever that is now. I'm home doing the math, so sort of 21 years, 22 yeah, yeah. years, and uh, I'm now doing more and more with the road car stuff with Aston Martin as well. So um, as my racing career sort of, sort of uh, it gets towards the end, I'm sort of picking up the road car stuff. So pretty much every day is doing something with a car,
0: something with a car, something cool. Can we... Most days,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> other than having to talk to people like me occasionally. Um, can we sort of go back to the beginning-ish and then work through and sort of... How did, how did you get into racing?
2: Uh, it was a cars? little bit... Uh, a bit of a mistake. I, I wanted to race bikes, but my mum was like, there's no way you're going to race a motorbike. <laughs> and so where they lived down in Canby, sorry, there was a car track up at, the, at Blackbush Airport. So used to watch a little bit of that um, when we used to go to the market so I knew the car track was there and everything else um, but in actual fact all I really wanted to be was like a, a Formula 1 mechanic, that was my mm. goal and I sort of didn't really understand that you know the people in Formula 1 had basically you know started out in the lower formulas or started with karting or everything. Yeah. I just looked at Senna, Mansell and, and these guys on TV and thought oh you know they were born Grand Prix drivers and And that was it. There wasn't anyone in the family that sort of knew anything about sport. Yeah. So uh, it took a bit of time to convince my parents that, you know, I really want to do this. And they're like, okay, well, you need to save up and get yourself a go-kart. So uh, I think I probably started saving at 12 and got a go-kart at 13. And we just did it for fun at the uh, local kart track. Uh, Me, dad, transit van, just rock up, do a bit of Mm -hmm. racing. And that was it. It was it was literally, I loved preparing the go-kart after school and at weekends, and maybe we did 10 races a year. It's it quite clubby what we did, but the enjoyment was more working on the go-kart. When I was 14 and near when my dad had his little unit, there was a Honda dealership that ran a couple of cars in the Honda CRX Championship, mm. and they wanted a, a gopher. So I got a job after school and was working there like two or three nights a week, did the Saturdays, and then they started to take me away to some of the race weekends as, as the sort of gopher for the team and so sort of 15 16 i was sort of regularly going to race meetings around the uk and, and actually was like loving it because i was working on the cars they trust me a little bit not too much <laughs> us, but it was a you know it was a an into motor sport. the carton was on the side and everything was going really well and when i left school they gave me a job so my first part was working on this Honda dealership. So one minute I could be working on the the little race cars and the next bit I could be servicing a generator or a lawnmower or something like that, you know, but unfortunately that dealership went, went under Uh Um, and at sort of 16, I'm like, Oh wow, about to be made redundant. And I sent out my CV to pretty much every race team that I could find because uh, was, it was before the internet. So it was like, oh, yeah. I think Yellow Pages, Autosport, whatever was around, just sent my CV out to everyone. And I got a couple of job interviews. I was just really lucky. Jordan Grand Prix was in its first year of, of Formula One and they were after someone to work in inspection. And because of the background I had with my dad's business, which was a little engineering shop, so I was mm. used to measuring metal and materials oh, okay. and using a mill and a lathe and stuff like that. So I went up to... Silverstone, so I think I just turned 17. Um, had this job interview at Jordan Grand Prix and, and got the job. And, and then suddenly it's like, well, I'm now working for a full 1 team. This is amazing. <laughs> I never thought that was going to happen at, at this point, if yeah. at all. So, and it wasn't obviously working on the car as a race mechanic, but it, at least it was a foot in the door. Yeah. Um, I moved up to Silverstone. And um, so, what were you doing at that point? Uh, well, in terms of racing or just. No, no no, uh, no, no,
0: no. Just like literally when you're working there as, in doing inspection. Yeah, inspection.
2: So every item for the car was, if it came from a supplier. So it was such a small team. I think I was like the forty-third employee of Dunebrot at the time. So nearly everything was outsourced in terms of build, composite um, machining, milling, everything like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we, these bits would come in, and you'd have to measure them, make sure they're correct to the drawing, make sure that the material was correct, and then it would be put into the stores and and used on the race cars. So. Every day was like you could have, I don't know, 10 wishbones to measure Mm. and, you know, they'd get put off to the race team or it could be a a gear lever. It could be, you know, there's thousands of items on a Grand Prix car, even more so now. Mm. And it was like just make sure everything is to the drawing. And that was my job. So, but it meant I was, well, the good thing was I moved away from home, which meant as a 17-year-old, you have to grow up pretty quickly. Mm. And I was based at Silverstone and in the middle of the the heart of motor racing, which was ideal place to be. And we were still karting. So my dad would um, either, he would drive to the kart track and I'd meet him or he'd come and pick me up and we'd go somewhere and do a bit of karting. So it's all still club racing Mm. and a bit of fun. And then effectively I got more experience at Jordan Grand Prix and then they let me sort of move around the company a little bit and I did other bits I moved into R&D, which was good because I started to work on the wind tunnel models and going to Southampton Wind Tunnel with, with the design team and Gary Anderson and all these guys. So my learning of, of race cars was really, really steep because I was in the, the sort of the high echelons of most yeah, yeah. with all these, you know, super smart people that I was able to sort of spend most days with. And I pretty much lived at Jordan Grand Prix, you know. Mm. I didn't really have a social life. I just loved everything I was doing there. So that was, that was amazing. And uh, there was quite a few karting event run by the teams that were based at Silverstone so I was a bit of a ringer because I was, can't have real. I was only whatever I would have been like 60 kilos or something like that yeah. so I'd go to these kart races and, and sort of clean up and then everyone sort of said well you should really give it a go try and go racing move out carts, and try and do single seaters and it's like well you know, I've seen Formula Ford and I've got a rough idea that it's like 40 or 50 grand to go and do Formula yeah. Ford that's like that's something I, I'm never going to be able to get that sort of money together and there used to be the Jim Russell Racing School at, at Donington. So I went around all the people at Drawn Grand Prix and there was Alan Docky in racing. There was a number of little race teams based at Silverstone at the time. And, you know, I was quite a cheeky little 17, 18-year-old and I convinced everyone to give me a fiver or a tenner or 20, 30 quid. And eventually I got the 1,000 quid to go and do the Jim Russell Racing School. And, and that was really the, the start. That's when actually it started to take some sort of shape of, yeah. of being a racing driver. up until then it was just... A bit of fun for me and my dad with the car team that gave me some access to understanding what, what race cars were about so uh, yeah the Jim Russell that week at Jim Russell was a real turning point in terms of of trying to be a driver
0: yeah yeah that is, uh, that, that stage there of, of working like working on the cars and working in some way on seeing them how they're designed and stuff that must have helped you massively throughout because I, I presume there's a lot of drivers that haven't really got much of a clue of how a car goes together and how it all works.
2: Yeah, I, get, I think that is true, and it, yeah, it did, it did give me a good grounding of of vehicle dynamics and how things are put together, why they're put together, and also especially when I've ended up in sports cars, it's like there's been a number of occasions when things go wrong yeah, and yeah. on the, the track, and having some knowledge to try and fix the car <laughs> to get it back is really helpful. And so, yeah, that 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 sort of. Uh, it wasn't an official engineering background. It was like a hands-on experience that yeah. I came from sort of being with the race teams and, and obviously everything I did at George Rock So yeah, really helpful uh, to sort of give me a good basis. And also it was one of those things that at no point have I ever thought, oh, I'm going to have a professional racing career. Yeah. yeah. I sort of came along later and it wasn't like a plan to be there. So at least I had some sort of fallback plan i could go back to working on the cars and you know i still you know i've had a couple of race cars myself that i've run myself just for fun and i like tinkering you know even now i like Mm. to just tinker with stuff and work out how to put something together how it will work how to make it improve it um redesign it and you know all that sort of just playing around with with bits of race cars It's, it's still fun now but at least now it's 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 a hobby rather than yeah, yeah. As a, as a job.
0: <laughs> so you're still working for the F one team and then you go to this race school, you do okay. Yeah, it was really good. The,
2: the Jim Russell school at the time, it wasn't I don't think there's anything really like it now, but at the time it was like the best place to go. And um it was a week week long course on the single seaters, and they were using Vauxhall juniors at the time. And like day one is generally Tuition in terms of classroom tuition of what we're trying to achieve, and then at the at the Donington, the Grand Prix loop. So you could go up and down that. So you had to learn and heel and toe, and you weren't allowed off the loop onto the actual racetrack until you've mastered heel and toe, <laughs> which is when you think now that hardly any cars require it yeah. in terms of modern race cars. It's but at the time it it was such a good grounding to have, and then the rest of the week was spent you know getting up to speed, a bit more classroom sort of um, um, theory on it all being driver coached by some really good guys that were sort of working at the school and at the end of the week it was a race you got your first sort of signature mm-hmm. novels crossed on the back of the car and yeah I did well I won that little race and there was you know a fair few competitive people in there but it meant I came away thinking oh actually I can I can do this yeah. I don't know how to do it in terms of financially but I, I got the skill sets to actually do the racing and so that was the sort of start of a you know crazy journey through lower single seaters and and wheeling and dealing to try and find the money to sort of go forward and the people at Jordan were very good. The next step was trying to work out you know what is achievable in terms of the budget. There was no way I was going to walk into one like, I guess the best team at the time was, or the best team for the first year of racing would have been Van Diemen with the, the Duckham's sponsored Formula Ford. you know, that would have mm. been a dream first gig. But um, and the only thing that looked like we could afford to do was the Formula 1st Championship, which I have to say is probably one of the ugliest race cars ever built, but <laughs> so much fun yeah. and a really competitive field of drivers. There were teams in it, probably the top, or six or seven cars were run by teams, but there was a lot of you know van and trailer type racing that exactly what I was going to do. So to get the money together, one of the designers at Jordan Grand Prix, I'd been quite friendly with him over a few years, and convinced him that I've got a business plan, that if he lent me the money to buy this race car, I could buy it, I could race it, and then I would sell it for more money than I bought it for, and he would earn a profit. <laughs> he, he lent me the money to, nice. to buy the, the Formula, uh, Formula First, and we went off and bought what we could for that money, and it was a bit of a nail, but the nice thing is I had the whole of Jordan Grand Prix and the, all, the, all of the facilities of Jordan Grand Prix, so I used to store my car there, when the team went off to to the race weekends yeah. I'd bring it out of the shed and I would bring it round and it would sit in the race bays <laughs> that the F1 cars were in and I you know I spent every evening and every weekend just working on my race car and you know slowly improved it I was sort of uh, fairly sort of cunning in working out that actually I need set ups from the good teams so I need to know, know some of the mechanics and then hopefully they will do a cash deal and come and do my car <laughs> and set it up so I sort of worked every angle I could and and we ended up doing eight races of the championship and the last race of the year, we put it on pole position, which sort of wasn't really known for, you know, a lad and dad to sort of do. So it finished really well. And that gave me the chance to do a a winter series with the team. You know, they, they gave me a a free drive. Speedsport gave me a free drive and, you know, away we went. And that was the start of this, this sort of semi becoming a racing driver. Yeah. yeah. Uh, But again, it was finding the money and what, was really good on that Jim russell racing There was three other guys there that were were doing the course they were all there for different reasons they're older than me you know not 10 years older than me something like that so they're there just to enjoy the course um i'm still friends with them now one of them worked in the city and he was instrumental in finding me sponsors like throughout the early early stages so those friendships and and uh, you know the the desire to help me on my journey came from going to that Jim Russell school. And if I hadn't have gone to that school and hadn't met those guys who, were, uh, you know, liked me and wanted to see me yeah. do well, then, you know, I, my little racing career would have been really, really short, you yeah, know, and yeah. it would have just been doing a bit of karting for fun or something like that. So, uh, yeah, the, the chance to get to Jordan Grand Prix, the chance to go and do the Jim Russell racing school, they, those key points were sort of the, the start of a career.
0: Yeah. Cause presumably, there's tons of people out there who are quick, but yeah. putting together sponsorship to go and race—that's hard.
2: Yeah, I'd say that. Yeah, there is hundreds of people that, thousands of people that are quick, and then there's the ones who are really quick, and then there's the ones that, who are exceptional. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's not that many in that that little that yeah. little bracket. But definitely, for me, it was more about what was happening off the track because the only way I could be on track was to make sure I optimize oh every that. opportunity yeah. off track, which was going out and finding money and, and sponsorship. So one of the other guys I met on the course, so I had the guy who was in the city uh, finding money. Hmm. Another guy, Andy, he was a printer. So he was helping me put brochures together, sponsorship proposals and all oh. of this stuff that as a 17, well, 18, 19 year old at the time, I, I wouldn't have been able to do, yeah. but he was there behind me doing it all and making sure I had, I had professional brochures to be able to go and drop around, you know, trade estates and pop them through the door. Because, again, it was all pre-internet. You know, you, yeah. you had to get the yellow pages out and go, right, I'm going to go round this trading estate, and if I see one nice car outside of a building, then there must be a head in there, <laughs> and that's the company I'm going to put the, the brochure through. Yeah. And, and it worked. You know, you, you, you found little deals here, here there and everywhere. One of the guys that uh, became a sponsor uh, like in 98, same deal. I was still out there sort of hustling and trying to find sponsorship like that. Uh, he's still a sponsor now. You know, he's, he's been on the journey for 22 years nice. now. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great that people, it's probably even harder now, especially with the current climate, to find people with companies that they can Get involved and become part of your whatever the journey is, yeah. you know, especially the, the next sort of generation of drivers. So um, I was lucky that there was a it was a period when there were a lot of companies that were probably in that position that they could do some sort of sponsorship deal with, yeah. uh, and get involved.
0: And presumably, if you if you get the right person at the right time, that relationship. You, your relationship with them grows over the next 20 years or whatever, but then hopefully their company also grows over the next 20 years or what they're doing business-wise and therefore yeah. they can offer more uh, yeah, sponsorship. Yeah. The, the, bit,
2: the bit that like, took me a few years to work out is when you're starting as a driver, there'll be a, a lad who's being a mechanic or trying to be a race engineer, or there's a guy in the, the company that you're getting sponsorship from who's also starting out there's all these people oh, starting okay. out and on their journey and yeah. trying to move up and now I'm I'm really aware of it and I try to sort of help, you know, when I do speak to younger drivers about a bit of career advice is just remember that the guy that is your front-end mechanic on your car, he's probably going to end up being a team manager or he's okay. going to be a race engineer and he's going to be in the position in future years that could give you a job. So, like, don't be a dick, basically. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, because there's loads of people who are on a similar trajectory to you and and trying to carve their own little career out and that they could be really influential in your career later on in life. Uh, And it might not be him that gives you the job, but someone will speak to him and say, oh, you know, was that Darren, what would he like to work with? And you want it to be positive and you want it to be, oh, yeah, get him in the car. He does a great job, really good team player. Yeah, 100%. It's all about those relationships. And sometimes you're... You'll meet someone, and it'll be ten years' time before you see them again. Mm. But if you've made a positive impression on them, that you know they might be in that situation where they could be a sponsor, they could be a team boss, they could be anything that can further your career. So it's always best to um, remember to, just to be a nice person, basically. But yeah, to remember yeah. that you know you are on your journey, but everyone else is in the same boat, but in a different, you know, different direction. But it, your past could easily cross. Uh, yeah, later. that's so
0: true. I, I'd never really thought of it like that, but a hundred percent. All of those people that are just starting out, and you come across, and whatever, they are going somewhere. And-
2: yeah, yeah, and and they could be a big dog in the future, yeah. and, and okay. they could be the person that gives you the big contract for whatever yeah, yeah. you're trying to do, and um, and even now, I'm I'm sort of more aware of it as I'm getting to the end of like a racing career mm. that there's there's guys that were young you know, let's say when I was like early thirties and they were like in their just coming into twenties and they were yeah. like a number three mechanic, they're now proper players in maybe engineer or a yeah. team manager role at a team. And it's like, it's weird because I'm, like, <laughs> I'm a lot older. When I started, I was always younger than mechanics. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm a lot older and it's like, you know, they're, they're influential in, in making decisions and, um, and you should be mindful of that when, when, whenever you're doing any sort of any
0: part of a team sport or I think it just in life any, you know. anything in life yeah, yeah. I, I it's definitely a good one to remember isn't it and, and check yeah. yourself every now and then when you, yeah. you might be rude yeah. to something like oh no don't go back and say sorry yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just be yeah. nicer yeah it's, it's better to be nice in the first place than yeah, this, exactly yeah. exactly so where do we go from there so you've uh, yes, yeah, so I, did,
2: I did the Formula 1st win ch- uh, Winter Championship with with a, a team. Um, I started to pick up a few bigger sponsors. And at that point, you know, I made a few, like everyone, you make career choices and it's yeah. it, some of them are bad. And what I should have done after Formula 1st, I should have done Vauxhall Junior, but I got persuaded to do Vauxhall Oaks, which was just, you know, I was, I was still really inexperienced. And I sort of went two stages up the ladder Mm. Um, and it wasn't a great move and that was a bit of so this was 94 a bit of a wasted year but I had started to build up a bit of a sponsorship portfolio and then that meant I met uh, I went on to do Formula Renault in 95 and 96 which with red racing and that team in particular that family looked after me so well without that family sort of taking me under their wing 100% my probably by the end of night four it would have you know again it would have been a uh, like that's done and dusted yeah. and really hard to keep anything going but I was really lucky that the team the family sort of believed in what I could do and although I had a healthy sponsorship deal in, in 95 to bring to the team in 96 I didn't and the team funded my racing oh, nice. and it was that year that put me in the contention for the young auto, well at the time it was the auto sport BRDC award McLaren auto sport BRDC award And it put me in contention to do that at the end of the year. And that award was basically the big stepping stone for sort of carving out a professional career. So you get to go to Silverstone, you have two days, and it was six drivers against each other, six young drivers, two days against each other in different things Formula Three, I think we had a catering, we had a saloon car. And you, you're basically going out there to be the quickest in everything they give you. Just be <laughs> the and funny enough, this, this morning I've just come from Silverstone because uh, the latest winner or last year's winner, Jonathan Hoggard, had his first run in the Formula One car. So um, it's really nice to be back involved yeah. in that as a judge and to see you know the next next uh, crop of drivers coming through. But the, um, the the two days of the award, I just love you know I had two great day great days driving different cars and. You know, I was able to just be myself and and drive uh, drive with everything on the line because there was so much at stake. But I went along to the awards ceremony ceremony in December, thinking I did a good job. But no former Renault driver has actually won this award before. It's always a mm. Vauxhall driver that's won it. So I'm guessing Vauxhall sort of sponsor the award or something <laughs> like that. You know, that's how my mind yeah, was yeah. was working. That you know, there's no way that a Renault driver is going to win it. So. I'll go along to the amazing Auto Sport Awards, have a lovely dinner with my family and friends and sit at the end of the night and clap the winner and everything else. But to my amazement and everyone on my table, um, I picked up the award and incredible moment in terms of I don't actually remember much of the evening because it was all, all a little bit overwhelming, but to walk away with, with the title the 50 Grand Check and membership to the BRDC. Yeah, it was like a huge turning point uh, and springboard for me. But what it did was give me the relationship with with uh, McLaren. So that was December '96, March '97. I got my first F1 test, which was part of the prize with with the award um, at Silverstone. That went really well, and that's the start of my relationship from sort of '97 to 2006 with with McLaren. And Martin Whitmarsh took me under it, under his wing, and you know he he was the guy that got me into. Into Mercedes DTM in, in 2000, and I spent 99 going around the world with the McLaren two seater Grand Prix car. You know, amazing time, and, and it all came from that award. Yeah, and yeah. uh, maybe if I hadn't won that award, it would have been the natural point of my racing finishing again because yeah. you know, trying to find the budget and everything else to move up to the next level would have been too difficult. But you know, it's, again, even then, there's been no plan, it was always. What opportunities come along, and, and then make the most of it. And you know, McLaren gave me loads of opportunities. They gave me the chance to be with Mercedes for a couple of years, and uh, you know that that was the period that like you know, ninety nine was when I started earning some, some money from driving yeah. cars and, and sort of turning professional. So uh, yeah, very very grateful to have picked up that award because if I look back, everything pretty much goes back to that award and 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 coming away as the, as the winner
0: yeah very cool so at that time so you went from did you say you Formula Ford into driving testing F1 Was that uh, Formula Renault so I did so Formula Renault. The
2: one, I came second in the in 96 came second in the Formula Renault championship uh, and then generally everyone who won the award had to wait a year or so before they got their F1 test yeah. so I was like oh, okay no worries I'll just use the winner and I'll do what I can to raise the budget to try and move up to Formula 3 and make all that happen. And then there was a phone call saying, oh, you're going to test in March. Like, Christ, I'm not Is even it? starting the Formula 3 season yet. And so it was a big jump, jumping from a Formula Renault, which probably had 170 horsepower to, I'm guessing the Grand Prix cars then had 700 or something horsepower. <laughs> so it was, it was huge, you know. Um, and it was a West Livery McLaren. It looked amazing. Yeah. Just the most amazing day. Uh, and, you know, when I left the circuit earlier and Jonathan had, had completed his first installation lap, you can tell that the experience of driving the Grand Prix car for the first time, how overwhelming it is, in a, in a positive way. You know, it's just all your senses are on fire because the things are just so fast. And he had uh, damp conditions this morning. It's cold, it's damp. <laughs> um, so that would have been even more exciting for him. Uh, and I had a perfectly blue sky, perfect day. And I could just remember heading down to Stowe for the first time, thinking, Jesus, this thing's, it's not slowing down. It's yeah. still pushing and pushing and pushing. And it's one of those things that your eyes are watering and, and you can see them when you brake sort of dropping onto the front of your visor your and stuff like that. And it's so true that the brakes on the Grand Prix car are, they're just insane. And that was on the installation lap. And, yeah. and you know, I had you know, another, they did it in five laps, knowing that we, you know, we weren't really, physically strong enough for it um so we had four five lap runs and by the time I got to the last five laps I only did three and then I came in and it was like you've sort of come in a bit early and I'm like yeah my neck's gone I can't even hold my head up so there's no point if I continue for another next two laps I'm going to go slower and probably crash so um, it was the right choice and also I think making that sensible choice on the day was the reason they then rang and said okay, there's some more work to be had here if you want yeah. in the future. And, and that's, you know, the first thing they ask you to do is a aero test, which is up and down a runway. And, you know, it's the real mundane stuff that the likes of Coulthard or and really don't need to be involved with. Yeah. But for a young driver, it's great, you know, to spend three days in the airfield in the middle of France going up and down. It's, it's just good experience. You know, it, it, builds that relationship with with the test team and then you get a chance to go for a proper track test and you know, all, that, all of those aspects all sort of come from doing a good day when you, you know, hopefully this afternoon it's dried out at Silverstone and, and Jonathan's, you know, getting some decent running and mm. if he does a good job and shows that, you know, he's got the skill sets to sort of work at that level, then, you know, there may be some more opportunities for him in a, in a Grand Prix car as the year goes on it's, it's a lot different now because there's less testing you know there was so much okay, testing yeah. when i was around in that period and now you know, there's hardly anything and you know aero mapping and shakedown tests they don't happen anymore it's, it's literally the cars get shipped to one race to the next and they know they're going to work you know they, they have complete it's faith but back then it was like well, we better go and do 50 kilometers on the car just to make sure that we've got it all piped, uh, piped together correctly
0: yeah, because then I guess and you've come through that era of going out, driving the car up and down a runway or whatever, working on bits to now fully sim-
2: simulate testing. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's the complete opposite now. You know, everything they can do, pretty much, I'd say nearly all the testing they can do in the sim is, is so accurate now that that real-time uh, testing is still really relevant. You know, you, you can never get away from it, but it, it will either tell them that the numbers that they're getting from the sim is correct or not and then someone um, in the simulation department has to go and do some more work <laughs> but um, it is to validate what they the numbers that they're getting through the sim testing and uh, and obviously drivers you know you want to be in a car and you want to go testing but definitely now it's probably I don't know maybe it's only 10-15% of the testing that was done uh, back when I was you know lucky enough to be in that period at yeah. uh, McLaren then.
0: And are you, testing, are you testing in simulators now? Uh,
2: uh, so I've got my okay. own sim company. So we, you know, something that developed when I was at McLaren. So I just happened to be at McLaren as one of the younger drivers when we decided to do a simulator program. At the time, mm. no one had, you know, there was offline simulation already going on, but there was no driver in the loop simulators. Okay, yeah. And he was the guy that basically instigated that program at McLaren Um, and they were the first team to really do it i happened to be the the young test driver on the on the books and when you think about what we had at the start which was there was two engineers in in charge of the program a small room with a chassis in it with a single projector screen and the first two or three years were all done in that in that year in that room and it was a disaster to begin with you know the models, the car models, the vehicle model, all of it was in its infancy. And, and, you know, I could have a day there where literally I'd do a lap and the thing would crash and we couldn't run. <laughs> and it was, you know, impossible days while they, you know, while they worked out all the, yeah. the software required. And as the years and, and, and time went on, suddenly there was more data being generated from the sim that had some real relevant to the numbers that were coming from the circuit. Yeah. And then there was a bit of a crossover point where we started to generate some very accurate information. And, and that's when it got the budget to sort of really go. And I think at that point, the sort of the, the Formula 1 drums were beating and people were moving around teams saying, "Oh yeah, McLaren's made some real progress with their sim. And, and now you can see that every race team, every Formula 1 team's got a, got a sim now. So I was, I was lucky, you know, I started doing that. I think it was either the back end of 98 or beginning of 99, and even up until you know this year, I've been doing the real high-end simulator work, either in, in Formula One or, or other big sort of uh, like NASCAR and stuff like that. So those yeah. sort of programs where it's got the OEMs behind it, and so you know that stuff's been really good. And because of all that experience I got from doing the McLaren simulator and then Red Bull, then Toyota, I started to set up my little business based on simulators more because. There was an opportunity because no one really was doing it at the other end of the market for driver sort of development uh, at the time, and the technology was sort of just becoming available. And I was thinking, well, I'm probably not going to earn a living racing cars forever, so I need to have some okay. other mechanism to earn, you know, to pay my mortgage. Whether the little company survives or grows or does anything, I still need to learn. Um, so thankfully, it's now been running 10 years and, you know, it's growing and growing and growing and um, we're sort of developing more products. But in in terms of a learning curve, it's been really nice to have that going on simultaneously to my racing because if I literally had to move across from racing to this 10 years ago, then I would have had to rely solely on earning out of this company and um, you know, it's been able to grow organically while I've still been able to sort of go racing and
0: Um, How so your company where does that sit in terms of you've got your f1 professional sims i'm presuming a sort of like over here somewhere and then you've got someone on their playstation over here yeah where do you tailor towards and for who
2: yeah so like the f1 sims are really there for driver training They're, they're literally there as an engineering tool to help with right Future designs or or sort of development of the current car and and optimization of it, um, especially over race weekends as well. That seems to be more of a, com- a common occurrence now. With all the teams doing doing simulation programs over race weekends during the sessions, so that their purpose is is very clear. It's an engineering tool. The drivers will use it if they're learning new circuits or there's a new sort of uh, procedures that they need to understand technical regs may have changed, you might get the drivers to go and use the thing. But generally, it's sim drivers in there in terms of you know test drivers or uh, or drivers who you know moved up the single-seater rank but ended up being in that role where they can earn a living um, and they probably do 50, 60 days a year of sim driving. So that's the far end of, of yeah. the sort of, you know, simulated spectrum. Then you've got the other end, which is pure gaming, the PlayStations. Yeah. Then you've got a little bit further, this way is eSports, Using more expensive equipment, and then we're sort of not an engineering sim in any shape or form, um, but we're a high-end driver development um, right. sim. So, we're, we're if you put PlayStation at zero yeah. and one at ten, I would say we're we're sort of the three to four market. Yeah. The bit that's difficult is the sort of the range five, six, seven, because at that point people are looking for engineering level detail from the sims but that costs a lot of money and you need a lot of resources to it and so there isn't really a, a marketplace for it that is uh, would make you a, a viable business yeah, yeah. there's a few people doing it but it's really more of an internal race team type situation you know, a race team sets up their sim and then tries to use it for engineering purposes well we're as this little facility we've got two sims here one's a single seat, one's a gt and we're here to try and improve drivers over race weekends effectively. And there's a rate of money that people will pay for that service per hour. Uh, and if you try to push it up by spending more money on the sims and development, you, you wouldn't get your investment back. So there's there's this sort of sweet spot that quite yeah. a few companies are in and it works really well. You know, there's lots of customers, there's people that use it effectively to prepare for the next race weekend. And um, it's a service that, I think is invaluable to, to any driver, you know, whether you're a pro or, you know, just coming into motor racing, it's, it's such a cost effective way of of getting the practice in before going racing.
0: And how close are Sims now, let's say at the level that you're setting them up to a real car, like in terms of the feelings and,
2: you know, what it's like, obviously it's a Sim,
0: so it's different, but
2: yeah, it is. I mean, you're never going to replicate reality. That's the thing. Yeah. And what you can do is really screw it up and like throw loads of gizmos at it to try and do it. And then you end up with reverse cues that like make you feel like you're accelerating when you're meant to be decelerating. <laughs> you know, there's lots of things that people will put in and it's subjective from driver to driver yeah. as well. The, the F1 teams, are, you know, their rate of development is still hugely impressive. But ultimately, it comes down to there's a few fundamentals that you've got to get right. What the steering feels like, the visuals are like, um, and then um, also immersion from the cockpit or the sound yeah. or anything else. The, the, you get those core things right, then you can add on motion at a later stage, or you know, it's quite a complex thing getting the motion right. And quite often, as a business like us, we have so many different customers and cars and circuits that they want to race it would be wrong of us to try and optimise our motion to fit every one of them so we have to generalise a little bit where a Formula 1 team they're only running one car uh, and that obviously that car has been developed all the time and they're running a number of similar tyre models and they're probably only using a number of circuits because they want to use the consistency of, of a couple of circuits so you know At that point, that car should feel really realistic in terms of what it does. The other end of the market, you need to get something that feels alright, right, does about the correct lap time. The the driver puts in similar inputs, and then that's sort of as good as you're going to get for the car model because, again, it's down to time and money you can spend on the car model and return of that investment. If you've got one customer who's only using that car model and he's only doing 10 hours a year, then you're not going to get one of your engineers to yeah. spend 60 hours doing that car model to, to make it as good as it possibly can you're going to get it close use all the experience that you have and then get it as close as possible and, and then just a bit of fine tuning with that individual customer but then there's other car models like for instance um, an F4 car model Well, we have lots of customers use that so it's in our interest to keep developing it using the drivers and the teams that come here to sort of fine tune it each time and and just keep getting it as, as, as good as we possibly can, really. So, yeah, it's like 100% we can make our sims a lot better. But it's it means spending a Is lot of money it? to yeah. do that, to yeah. move it up. And, and at that point, it's like, well, I'm doing it for my own satisfaction rather than trying yeah. to keep the, the sim business viable and and everyone in, in work and, you know, customers keep coming back to sort of the thing. So.
0: Yeah, and if, if you spend all this time and money developing one car and – then there's only one customer for that car. You're giving everyone else a poor ride because you're gonna you've put yeah. all your money over there.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so we, we have to try and make it so we're a facility that works really well for all our customers. You know, 100 we're trying to give them the best we possibly can. But obviously, with the time and dedication, that means that you know we can we can look after all these people at once, really. Mm. what's
0: the what's sort of, what's the software you're using nowadays
2: so we've changed over the years and we've moved around for various reasons but right now we're using the set pro so it, you need software that you can get access to do the circuits and the car modeling and the time board there's other you know for instance iRacing you know they've got some yeah. good circuits on there uh, but everything's locked down so you don't have the opportunity to to sort of do your own modifications and and changes to the circuits because circuits change, you know, but yeah. if iRacing racing as a platform for eSports is fantastic, um, but for our type of, of business, it, it doesn't give us the the access or the flexibility. So a Assetto Corsa Pro right now works really well for what we're doing here in terms of the rental side of business and the Sims that we sell yeah, uh, means they can have whatever we've developed. They can have at their home as well. So it works well. But you know, it, it's a it's a moving goalpost. You know, we've changed um, software three times in the, in ten years, and every time you change, you've got to build up your circuit library again and yeah. build up your car models again, and all. And it it takes time. So you don't want to do it too often. But we will change when we think the the product there's another product out there that will give our customers a, a better sort of opportunity and, and increase the immersion of what we, we were able to provide. So it's, it's a sort of a moving goal us, really. But yeah, right totally now, I'm very happy with course, so it works for you know nearly all our customers.
0: And how does Pro differ from the conventional standard one you can buy?
2: Uh, I think it's more the access that it gives us uh, and also like uh, best way of describing it in terms of what is the best way of describing it? Axis would be the main one, and there's another dimension that they often talk about: the engineers. And I'll probably remember the word in a minute, but we come back to that. The okay. big come back to that one, but it's 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 basically given us the chance to sort of do all our own um, modelling and tires. Okay. And so everything.
0: You, you, you I mean, can adjust parameters outside of suspension norm, setup and the yeah, normal stuff. Yeah. That you want to change. You're like, I want to change how grippy that tire is,
2: or what? Yeah. And you can do quite a lot of that in the normal uh, world, but this just gives us like ultimate control of yeah. what we're trying to do really. So yeah, it's, it's good. But we started, you know, when the company started, it was on R factor and we've moved to Panthera at certain stages and, and you know, you just got to find what works well. And, and, and even now there's like, there's times when you can look at other, uh, software and it's like our factor do a great Le Mans. you know we raced yeah. the eSport this year and it was it was fantastic so mm-hmm. as long as you've got the commercial license for all of them you can sort of copy and paste a little bit with what you're doing
0: yeah and presumably certain bits of software every now and then someone will come out and they've got a track that you don't have on any of the others or a car or something and you're like this person wants this so we've got to do
2: yeah quite often it's people that bought our sims that will suddenly go have you got this circuit and it's
1: like
2: <laughs> actually I've never heard of it and then we'll do a bit of work. It's like, we don't have it, uh, and you can't get it on the platform we're using, yeah. but it, this platform does have it. So you just need to download the software yeah. and use it. It might not be ideal, but it's still going to be like really relevant for what you need to yeah. learn the circuit. So, yeah, we, we can't do every circuit in the world because that would just... not exist as well, yeah. Yeah. It's unlikely we're going to have a customer here that wants a circuit in the, like, I don't know, Willow Springs in, in California or something like that. You know, it's yeah. unlikely, so we don't need to cover that basis. Yeah, totally.
0: the um, the home the home sort of sim setup. I'm I'm on that like slight journey, just elevating wow. slightly up, and it's I'm 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 at the point now where I'm a, I think I'm about to go and like get some sort of cage type thing and mount some screens, and right. that's that's the next step for me. But it's it's pulling the trigger on and trying to wow. work out where to pitch it.
1: Well, the budget will dictate that. The wouldn't budget,
0: it? obviously, obviously, yeah, but, you know, <laughs> you are like the difference of doing, let's say, a race weekend in a race car or buying yourself
2: a sim, and you are like, "Yeah, mm, okay, like...
0: Well, the, only, the, the, the way problems? I look at on
2: the sim stuff now is there is so much decent uh, equipment out there that's available that will give you a good, good level of sim mm-hmm. without too much expenditure, but they last forever. That's the that's the thing, you know. If you buy a sim now and you spend, I don't know, let's say twelve or yeah. 16 or something like that, but it's going to last you five years minimum, you know? And then you think about how much you get out of that sin, um, and how much it will help your preparation. It's a small fee to pay over that period. Okay. It's lumpy at the beginning, but you know, that that's one of the, the of, hours and you get a lot out of it. Yeah, exactly. And, I, and you know, I've sort of lived around Sims now for over 20 years and I don't have one at home and I, Really want one at home, but (laughs) I know if I had one at home, I'd be spending way too much time in it. And I will get one at at some stage, but it's you know the the times I get to you know we've got two big sims here, we've got sims that are being built, and sometimes we have to jump on them and and sort of do one hour on them before they go to the customer. And then we've got ones that we use for okay, we've got a new part, let's put it on this one. It's our development hack thing. It's not pretty it's basically, it's there to bolt bits on and um, try them out, see if they work and what relevance they have and if we can use them. And to use that, like when people have gone home and just sort of have an hour, cheeky hour on it, I love it, you know, it's, it's good fun, it's, you know, it's uh, it's an enjoyable time to just drive for the sake of, you know, yeah. enjoyment really.
0: Um, yeah, but- I've, I've, I went to, I'm not going to name them, but I went to a sim place a while ago probably five years ago yeah. um, to do they, I think they did, I did like an introductory session and they were going to optimize your life and everything or whatever. And my problem was I got in it, was aimed to drive the car that I was racing at the time, which was a radical. And I got in the sim and it just didn't feel the same. Like I, it, even from, I know it's not going to feel like racing a car. Like I've driven loads of racing games and stuff before, uh, with wheels it's just even just the wheel was way way off to how it felt and yeah. that meant it took me most of the time in the session even to get close to being able to just drive the sim yes yeah um whereas you get on a good one or one that's been calibrated well and that that journey is much shorter and immediately yeah. I, I went away from that and was like well yeah and i've tried a different couple of other ones since and I was like well I'd rather go home and do like 5,000 hours at home than yeah two hours on something where you have to learn to, to, drive. to drive the sim and then you're like I'm not actually sure I'm getting anything out of this the main thing would be the coaching side of it yeah and 100% yeah. that is you know that's you can't just get that at home
2: yeah I mean, like when we do a car model and that we try to bring in experienced drivers of that car mm. because you know, I could jump in it and I go, well, it goes around the racetrack and it goes up and down the gears and it brakes and it does it does everything that a car should do, but it might it probably doesn't have the character of yeah. the car. So we always try to bring in people that have regular experience of the car because if they've got real data from the real world, yeah. so we can make sure that the performance is about right, but they know what the steering wheel feels like and you know the weight of the steering wheel and yeah. and you know, just the little characteristics of the car that we could never get from the data, you know, mm. trying to reverse engineer it and build the car model that way. So by bringing in the people that know about the car, we, I think we do put the feel into it. But one of the things about sims is because it's not real and it, it, you're never going to get all those real experiences, yeah. you have to relearn and also then just get used to the sim. Mm. And, you know, I'd say it's a, a minimum 10 laps before you should even think about is this good or bad, yeah. it's going to be 10 laps where you just adapt to the fact there's no feel from movement potentially if it's not got uh, motion and just so your brain gets used to the, the visuals and everything else. Then after 10 laps, then you can start to sort of pick some holes in it if needs be or, okay, we need to change this, this and this sort of thing. So yeah. it, is, it is hard and, and some people are more sensitive to, the, the differences between virtual and, and reality, and that's that's just normal. But it, we have it with the um, the ones that we sell because obviously people buy them, they're going to go racing, they've got their car model, the real cars, and we build them the car model to sort of match what they're yeah. racing themselves. But we always bring in a, a pro to sort of base on it. And, and today, one of our guys is off site, he's off with one of our customers because he's not convinced it's quite like his car. Yeah. We're happy that we've done a good car model because we've had a real driver, but it may be, and he he does sessions here in reality. He does sessions here. So he uses the sim, that car model here with his driver coach. He's got a smaller sim at home with the same car model, but somewhere it's not (laughs) working for him. So our guy's going down there today to to try and, you know, maybe there's a few little changes we need to do the sim to give him that same experience. So it's just, it's just a bit tweaking here and there. But it's quite it's quite normal for people to, to sort of go, that doesn't feel like my car. And it's like, okay, well, we need you just to adapt a little bit to to a yeah. sim. Because there's so much information you're not going to get in this environment that you will get subconsciously in the real environment. And that's, mm. that's sort of the skill between jumping between two different things, especially for the people that are doing F1 sims, you know, when they're doing the engineering work. There's a million things bits of information they're not getting and there's yeah. so many things that we don't even have names for but it's all sensory and it tells you what the balance of the car is it tells you where the peak of the tire is and the point of rotation on the on the axis and all, all that stuff which drivers don't even think about but they you know you, yeah. it tells you where the limit is and, and trying to replicate all of that in a room is nearly yeah. impossible Yeah, you
0: always get people come back and they're like, oh, I spun this car and I would never have spun that car in real life. You're like, yeah, 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 it's just going to happen. You're not going to get all of the same feelings and inertia and whatever.
2: I I mean, you know when a sim's good if you don't spin often. Mm. So uh, once you've got through the sort of getting used to the sim, if you're spinning off every two or three laps, then, yeah, you can sort of justifiably say, it's not good, you know, <laughs> it isn't quite right. Unless you are a person that races in the real world and spin off exactly so. as well. But, you know, then at that point you go, this is brilliant, this is absolutely spot on. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's it's one of those things, you know, I think this year I've not had a spin in in the real world. Last year I had one. And I think the year before that I had zero and the year before that I had two. So in, in real driving spinning once you get to a certain level where it doesn't yeah. te- you know it doesn't really happen and then if you get to the sim world and you're going off I don't know, 10 times a, a, you know, a session or a day yeah. then yeah you need to the sim needs to be improved it, they need to be able to give you a bit more cueing to see where the balance of the car is
0: yeah i remember when it was project cars when, when Project Cars came out, I remember playing at home and then just span like a hundred million times in the first 10 yeah. minutes. And it almost got to the point where it was like, this is going in the bin because I just cannot drive it. And then they came out and they're like, oh no, we haven't calibrated it at all for anyone to use in real life. You're like, okay. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah. Cheers, guys. Yeah. The telly nearly went through or the monitor nearly went out of the bit, yeah. But it's like, when I've been doing this, like, obviously the lockdown now, there's so much sort all of going on and did hmm. the Legends Trophy and stuff how was that it was amazing loved it um, but it was the hours required to be competitive yeah um, so you know there's some proper drivers in our in our little race that we were doing on Saturdays and effectively you could test all week and when yeah. you saw people's la- like lap count you're like they have literally been testing all week you know because they've got nothing else to do in the yeah. week and you know, I used to maybe get it running Friday night. I'd come in a bit earlier on Saturday. And I reckon before each of the races, I had four or five hours of track time, yeah. which I thought was plenty. Yeah. And then you think, I reckon they're up to 25 hours of, of <laughs> track time with the amount of laps they've done. And, you know, the, there was a big difference in in people's performance because of that. But it it was still great fun. You know, I loved it. and uh, There was Indy in particular was when we did the 500 just the most fun I've had in a sim environment, and and it was really competitive. And at one moment you think you're a hero because you're sort of near the front, and then yeah. everyone toes past you, and, and then next thing you're in the wall, and, and it was just <laughs> the, the banter on the Discord and everything else was yeah, yeah. was you know really uh, a good way to spend a Saturday. And it and it stopped. You know there was there was season one, season two, um, and then there was talk about doing some more, and, and it hasn't happened now. And what we've tried to do is a couple of sim nights with people that have got our sims at home. Mm. And uh, no one knows the tracks. We sort of shout at six o'clock and say, right, six o'clock, this track's going live, and seven o'clock, free practice, and then eight o'clock, 10-minute qualifying, and then we do two races. Yeah. Uh, and that's it, a bit of fun. And one of be reverse grid. And what generally happens, we do the two races, and then it's like, this is where everyone's on Discord and still yeah. talking. Do you want to do another one? <laughs> yeah, all right, let's do another one. So, And it's it's great fun because no one's had to do 10 hours of practice to be halfway up the grid. Yeah. You know, it's like everyone's starting off with, and, and for sure there's people that are really good at it and not. And occasionally the ones who are, I would say, lacking in experience in the esports sort of stuff, yeah. I might tell them a few hours before <laughs> it's going to be, just to so give them a bit of a helping hand and, and yeah, get them yeah. up to speed to the thing. But, yeah, it's been really nice just to sort of throw in those races every now and again. It would be good actually if I'm trying to get one later on this week as well, just to, um, while I'm in the UK, it'd be nice just to sort of crack on and have this another one. It's quite road.
0: good fun, isn't it? Like
2: messing around with really, mates and stuff. It's, it's really good fun. And, and the nice thing, what was happening was none of us could get through turn one without wiping out half the field. <laughs> so effectively, whoever managed to get through turn one would become the safety car. So it was like, you know, whoever it was, like, can you just slow down? Some of us are upside down or whatever. So pack everyone up. And then um, one of my engineers here would be like uh, the sheriff and like, okay, you can go green, green, green. And off we go again. And if there was another massive shunt, it would be like, okay, well, you know, it's, it's, it's race to the flag now. But at least it was, it was really sporting and a bit of fun. And it was also like, you've got to have a, a beer beforehand. You're not allowed to drive your sim without. Yeah, fair. Before, yeah, it was good. How much crossover
0: do you think there is between real world on track driving and esports
2: driving? Um, it's interesting. I think the 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 people that are doing well in esports, they they've got the skill sets to be able to do it. Um, you know, the fundamental skill sets of being able to go into race cars and do a good job because the, the high end of esports is they're incredible you know the, what they 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 sort of dedication mm. the hours they spend practicing to get get good at the game and it's probably been more difficult for pro real drivers to come across to the eSport world yeah. because there's certain techniques that literally don't work in in the real world and it's ingrained in you because that's what you've been doing for yeah, yeah. forever you would explode um, a car or whatever Sorry? You'd you'd blow up your engine or something. Well, it's the little things about, you know, the the steering input and saturating the front tire. Uh, Well, you know, in the real world, you'd never really do that. um, because.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: you sort of drive into the grip that you have available and you can yeah. feel it where it seems in certain, you know, certain platforms that the tire model means you've got to get over the top of it um, okay. and sort of kill the performance a little bit. So
0: go over uh, that bit where it starts to go almost like off, you know?
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, you sort of, to make sure that the rear doesn't, you don't spin off, you, you know, you've got to saturate the front. And little techniques with the braking, where you sort of keep a bit of pressure in. Um, sorry, with throttle, so you're braking, and, and if you did that in the real car, one, your fuel consumption would be horrendous. The brake wear well would be horrendous, um, and you'd probably lose it anyway. Where like it seems normal to sort of trailing some throttle with the brake, <laughs> uh, and again helps to sort of stabilise the the entry phase. So you know all these little things that are so. Abnormal to real yeah. driving, and they seem to be the basis of being really strong in in esports. So um, that seems hard going the other direction. Uh, but once you start to master it, it's quite fun to sort yeah. of do it. You've just got to remember not to take it back to to the real world. But you know, we've seen already for number, of, you know, GT Academy was a yeah. good example with the guys that uh, Lucas and Jan, you know, a number of drivers that came out of that program who have easily demonstrated that you can, you, you can use that platform to find really talented race drivers. Now, obviously, the, the norm would have been karting. You know, that was the feed for yeah. bringing drivers up. Well, you know, not everyone's got the access to to spend that sort of mm. money. You know, even to do it cheaply is two or 3,000 quid a year, if not you know, 5,000 quid a year. And you're never going to – if you're spending that money – it will be very unlikely you're going to get to a point where you can make an impression that someone's yeah. going to pick you up and take you on. Now, if esports... Well, already, there's people in esports making a good living. So they don't need to look across the, well, the real world.
0: Well. It was going to be a follow-up question. like well, At that point, there is there doesn't need to be a, a cross? No. If, if,
2: well, there can be a cross if people want to go from... The virtual to the reality and and have that experience and vice versa if if you can't get on the run in the real world because of you know it's expensive to get going then you've still got an opportunity to do it virtually and actually make a decent career okay the 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 career might not be as long maybe i don't know you know i don't know how you know, it's still quite in its infancy at the moment. So maybe these guys will be around for two or three years and the next crop comes through. Maybe the turnover is is quicker. I don't know. But there's still a good number of people making a fairly good wage out of of, of esports. So, yeah, maybe they don't need to cross, but they have and it's been successful. Certainly yeah. it's been successful taking someone from the virtual world into, into real racing. I don't know if I've seen it go the other way yet. Where, yes, people have come across and they've been good, but I don't know if they've then become pro. I yeah. don't know if it's happened yet. So, yeah, but it's it's great, and I just think it's a lovely way of of maybe introducing more people to to racing. You know, whether it's real or, or not, it's just a it's another access point for people to get involved.
0: Yeah, the more people playing whatever great whatever game Gran Turismo Sport. And they might do like an endurance race, and they're like, oh, what's this endurance race? Oh, this is Le Mans. Like, oh, and then you start to discover, and you get to the thing I love about Sims and you know, that sort of side of the gaming is I get to drive in some element all of these cars that otherwise yeah. I'm never going to get a chance to drive.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and so for me, it's like when we've done some bits and we've driven some old Grand Prix cars around Goodwood actually, like, I'm never going to get to drive that car. In fact, I don't even know if that car still is yeah, around. Yeah, it's probably a museum somewhere, but it was fabulous to drive sort of thing. And, and you're right. And that conversation came up a fair bit. as in um, Elantra at the weekend racing, and it came up quite a bit over the weekend where people get to enjoy racing cars that, one, they may, may even never have the chance to go to the circuit, let alone drive that particular car. Mm. And I think that's what's so like great about eSports and, and the fact that the the visuals are just so immersive now and the cars are getting more and more representative to, to what they are in the real world is yeah. give it another five years I, I can't even believe how far it's coming this five years so yeah. let alone what the next five years is going to bring to the to and it's
0: get, as it gets better it's getting more popular and as it gets more popular they get more budget and a video game is going to have way more budget than an, even
2: like an F1 team to put yeah, in a sim. I can imagine yeah I can imagine which is great you know because it's they are so enjoyable I mean we, we did that uh, Le Mans uh, race e race mm. and uh, I, I wasn't particularly competitive in that I still loved it and my first stint was midnight so I've sort of been up all day and I'm like, getting a little bit like I actually want to go to bed now but I, I'm about <laughs> to do my first stint and then it, we were doing three hour stints um, at that stage I'm like, I'm not even sure I can do three hours of driving a sim. Yeah, it went so quick, and I loved it. And the be- one of the best bits for me was on the the Malmstrom Straight. Uh, a Corvette was overtaking uh, overtaking me, and the noise of it coming past was identical to what it is in reality. And it, it's the it's the noise of their side exhaust coming up the door yeah. and in, into the car. And I, I was listening driving along and I was like oh my god that's just I just want to stay here for a bit longer he's going past but I wish he wasn't because it's just brilliant and I, uh, one of my guys the engineer was, was sort of sat next to me anyway and i like, this is so good he's brilliant <laughs> <laughs> back at the, it was just great and uh, yeah, it would be really good if they that was a one off obviously because there was no Le Mans in June yeah. it would be great if they did that annually maybe they it's a, a winter thing or something because it was so
0: much fun to do yeah, they should totally do that. And it was, yeah, it was cool. I watched a bit of it, and it I'm sure it was wicked fun to do. So, so we've talked about a lot about sim racing in Le Mans and stuff like that. Let's talk a little bit about real life out there yeah. on the track. <laughs> so you've been to Le Mans quite a few times.
2: Yeah. Uh, its seven, I missed this year, but it's 17 up until now. So wow. it, like, I never thought, you know, even to go there once would have been like a great experience. So to to have been there like 17 times. It, I've been there 18 because I was there in 99 as the reserve driver for Mercedes. So that was a nice way to go there. So I got involved with the team. I saw how it all worked. It was an unfortunate weekend for Mercedes anyway. But in terms of an experience, I think for anyone, any driver, it would be worth going there as, not as, a, as a part of the team but not as a driver before that just so you can understand the magnitude of the event to take in the atmosphere and to operationally see how it, how it runs um, because I think if you go there for the first time and you haven't had any experience of it it's quite a lot going on um, not, m- this year was probably a bit easier for the drivers because there was less things going on in terms of, of off-circuit Commitments with the you know the, the driver parade the sponsorship things you have to do yeah. there's none of that going on so it was a quite a basic race weekend but when it's the full blown Le Mans week it's it's a full on week you know it's a it, by the time you get to the race you're pretty knackered already um, so yeah I think it's it's a good experience to go before and so '99 was really good in terms of just letting me understand what the race was about uh, and then 2003 and four I did it with the Ferrari 550 drive cars, which they, you know were epic cars to drive. That Man. is a sick and, car. And it, uh, it's beautiful. I mean, it was really good to drive, and I got the chance to drive with Conor McRae in two thousand and five. So that was just an amazing week. And that's when you know, after that race in two thousand and four, the whole Aston Martin racing journey began because the DBR nine was already in, in design, and we started testing towards the back end of two thousand and four with the with the GT one DBR nine um and then from 2005 it was it was sort of a, a full on race program and uh, you know from that moment on I've, from 5 till you know last year I've been back with with Aston Martin every year at Le Mans either driving GT1s uh, LMP1 or um, or GTE you know it's been a good selection of cars to race
0: how do those cause like DBR9 that's one of my favorite cars it's a badass thing like is it? How do they, those sorts of cars compare? Like a, a GT one car from back then, or sort of towards the end of the GT one period, to versus GTE now? Like, how does that? How how are they different?
2: Yeah, they are. They are. You know, fundamentally, they're quite different in terms of the GT GT one, especially the DBR nine, is like my all time favorite car to race. It's sequential shift, you had to heel and toe. It was a big engine, lots of power, reasonably good aero. Uh, tyre technology wasn't too bad as well at the time so it was a really nice car to drive fun, you had to grab it by the scruff of the neck Your input. you were busy behind the wheel, you know, shifting you know, having to heel and toe every time there's a lot for the driver to do and it was enjoyable because of that. and the, the Michigan tyres we were on were like really impressive in terms of their performance over a triple stint etc, you know, it was, it was um, something that I, I wasn't really sure they were capable of doing. Um, but, you know, the car, you started with a full tank of fuel and the car just got quicker and quicker and quicker. You came in, refueled, car was still competitive, just a little bit slower than the first in, And, you know, by the time you got to the third stint, they were still gripping the tyre. And so it was great fun to drive. And also, you know, against a, a, um, a competitor like Corvette, it made for great racing. And then... When GTE started with the WEP program, different animal altogether. So aerodynamically, probably a little bit less performance, sequential uh, sort of paddle chip, okay. um, so you didn't really use, once you used, used the clutch to pull away, that was it, and then it was all on the paddles. Less power, but probably more mechanical grip from the, from the car. Um, so a different animal to drive. Um, where the GT1 was grabbed by the scruff of the neck, Uh, the gte was a bit more about finesse Uh, still enjoyable but in a in a different way from what the gt1 cars were but you know they were they're challenging there's more going on there's more you can adjust in terms of of optimization as well when you look inside a a gte now and you compare that from what the gt1 car was it's it's completely like the 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 dash and everything else, the the level of information and the questions you've got is insane. So the GT1, we had a simple dash, it was red LEDS. it told you when to change gear, it told you what gear you're in, and then it had a couple of lights that told you if you had an oil issue or a potential issue, and that was it. That was <laughs> yeah, yeah. all the And the only it had two little blue LEDs on the dash that were fitted after, which told you if you had a locked the front left mm-hmm. or right. So very, very simple. Then you go into like the current GT car. You've got an amazing Cosworth dashboard, which you can have a million bits of information on. You've got your shift lights. You've got locking lights. You've got traction control lights on it. You've got everything you need to know in terms of parameters on the car all on display. To the right of that, you've then got your rear view camera on there, which has got a radar on. So that's got arrows flicking up with, oh, that car's 50 metres behind. or it's 20 metres behind. It's, it's on you. Don't turn in sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so you've got all that information. And then to the next side of that, you've got another screen, which has got like the marshalling system, which is yellow flags, red flags, slow zones, yeah, yeah. everything that they want to give the drivers which is really useful. And then further up on the dash is a two sets of eight lights, which give you various stages of locking and various stages of, of traction control. So that's all, that <laughs> all the stuff. in there, which can be a little bit overpowering at times. And then the steering wheel, the GT1, I think had probably two buttons, a radio yeah, yeah. and a pit lane speed limiter. And maybe there was one or two rotary switches to use, but that was it. And the GT, current GTE one has got like 14 buttons, five rotary switches. Yeah, it is so much going on. So it's a yeah. different type, a different animal to drive because you're using in the GTE, you're using the tools more, you know, tuning them mm-hmm. where, like I said, the GT one is like, it's a bit rough and ready. Just grab hold of it and yeah, drag it around for three hours and, and, do The best you can with it, but so much fun to drive, <laughs> yeah. And they're
0: all I mean, all of those cars sound unbelievable, I yeah. The,
2: the, the LMP, we had the LMP uh, phase, which you know, the first nine and ten was the, the Lola Aston Martin V12. That was sick, beautiful car, sounded incredible, and yeah, completely different from a GT car to drive. And it was the diesel period, so we never added. A chance of overall fr- mm. victory, but we were, you know, fighting for petrol honours when we we're out there. Um, and a great, great car's to drive. You know, to to run in LMP at Le Mans where you're not really having to think about your mirrors. Particularly, <laughs> it's just cutting through the the, the different classes. It, it's great to be in that position. Really enjoyable. And the, I'd say the only downside of or everything that Aston Martin Racing's done has been 2011 when we had the AMR1, which was you know, pretty much a disaster at Le Mon and, and soon after that got canned. So, you know, for all the years of, of success and that and one year where it wasn't particularly good, it's, it just shows how strong the team's been over such a, a long period of time.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, definitely. That, the whole scything through traffic, like uh, right now, how did GTE, because GTE cars are, are, are they still, there was a point where they were faster than LMP2 cars on the straights.
2: There might have been a period a long time ago when the top speed of the LMP2s weren't particularly strong. Now it's a big difference. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'd say if you look at top speeds at Le Mans, the GTE cars are nearly nudging two hundred. I think the LMPs are sort of two two five, and the you know maybe it's 235, 240 for the uh, for the LMP one. So. Maybe not as high as that, but it's, it's still 230 yeah, or something. Yeah. So yeah, there's a nice speed differential between the cars. What you don't want is everyone with the, each class with a similar top speed because then it means all the overtakes have to happen in the, the braking yeah. zones uh, or the corner and that leads to all sorts of problems. So when the cars are considerably quicker down the straight, it's easy to, for them to either decide, I'll wait until I got through the corner before overtaking or for you to go okay we're probably going to be getting close to each other when we're in the braking zone if I just ease up the throttle a fraction he's going to get a clean right line through the corner and the overall hindrance yeah. is less you know that, that that sort of traffic management is one of the biggest skills to have at, at any multi-class type of racing and, and particularly at Le Mans is letting your ego go do you know what? I just I just ease off here because it's effectively factory is going to be the the least compromise over my yeah. laptop, and that's what you're generally fighting against. But quite often it's like you you're in your zone, and it's like no no, I'm going to break it <laughs> my normal point, and then you end up with this cluster of chaos at the apex where you both are completely screwed, and you end up losing a second half. When if you just rolled off the throttle, gave that person the corner, you lose half a second. But it's it's quite a hard mindset to get into. Um, and, and also when you're doing with the GT, when it's class to class or AM against pro, so you're not in the same race, but you sort of, uh, you're making a move and it's like, if you just, just came off your throttle, right, you know, for a half <laughs> a second right now, you and me are going to have no issues when we get to the apex. Yeah. No, no, it's all this like two <laughs> car around the corner. It's oh, Come on. But if and, you had
0: an AM driver that was sneaking up on you, sorry. If you had an AM driver sneaking up on you, uh, would you would you do that little little lift and then just let him pass?
2: Well, no, it, it never happens, does it? An AM driver <laughs> never, never coming up on you. You know, it doesn't work like that. Thankfully, you know, there's always a difference between the pro class and the AM in overall performance, so that that scenario doesn't happen. There's been occasions when the classes have been really close on performance, and you might be on. Triple stint tires mm. and they're all new, yeah. um, and it, then it becomes a bit of more of an issue because if you're behind them, it's really hard to overtake if they're not going to help, yeah. and vice versa, they can be quite punchy to begin with. But yeah, you're not letting them through. There's there's <laughs> no way on earth <laughs> that's happening. So um, uh, yeah, it's uh, it does make for some funny situations out on on track with the whole yeah, yeah. traffic management. But one of the the big skills of of dealing with it is uh, you can see in your mirror, you can sort of work out quite quickly what car is coming. You'll build like a bit of understanding of all the cars out there. Um, And you'll start to plan where you think that car is going to get to you. So you're already working out what the overtake might look like and what you might do to compromise yourself less. So it may be you roll out the throttle. Or it could be you actually defend early, so the prototype knows. Okay, he he doesn't want me to dive bomb him. So yeah. I either stay behind for the corner, or I've got to go the long way round, and there's a bigger risk. Yeah. But you put the ball back in their court because what is really horrible is the moves when uh, it's a full dive bomb. You know, you've already committed. You've already got the trajectory for the apex, and suddenly this LMP car's just sent it yeah. and. You've got to turn out, and it means if you turn out, you might be on the marbles, and you might not get back in, and you know it happens a lot. Uh, and I've been guilty of it when I've been in the LNP call, where I've you know I've, I've sent it probably a bit too late for the mm. guy to sort of make an adjustment, and it's hard. You know, it's hard for L- people in LNP to always judge that situation you know quite often you think ah i'm gaining this quick it must be you know easy for me to get before get past before it gets to the apex but it's not always the case but you know that's what makes it so exciting that no lap will be the same um and there's always something going on uh which makes it
0: yeah multi-class racing licks is so to me is so much more interesting Uh, yeah a a lot more interesting than single class a lot of the time because of this because the fact that you're dealing with other cars all of the time. And there's all of these interactions that have to happen around the fact that you're still in a race with the other people.
2: Yeah. And and that's, it it does really mix it up and it, and it does make it fun because of it. And it just keeps you on your toes. You know, the other side is single mate racing when it's really close. Mm. Um, and no, there's no one dominant because the cars are just so even. It's like you go indoor karting. Now, Okay, there's always a variance in the cars, but hopefully during the night you'll get swapped around. You don't have the same. There's going to be a a donkey out there, and hopefully you only get it for one heat or something. But generally, you'll you'll have a good car backup. But most people can drive an indoor car well because the car speeds are low. It's single-line racetrack, basically. So your average person with a bit of experience would do a good job. Even compared to like a full yeah. pro person, and as you sort of move away and the cars get quicker and everything else, then there tends to be a bigger gap between a good driver and a really good driver, etc. But when you do like the single make stuff where it's slow, I think some of the racing in that is magical because it's like the high, it's a fairly high speed game of chess. No one's going to get away. No one's going to break the pack. But, you know the the cars are are uh, aerodynamically not brilliant so the toe is great um, and it just means there's really close racing all the time and if you've got a load of drivers with decent respect that it's not about firing each other off then um yeah, it's brilliant. I love it. You know that sort of stuff is always good fun to go and do.
0: Yeah, occasionally, yeah, you get those grids. Whether it's I don't know, like GT3 Cup or probably something that, or go down, go way down, like MX5s. Yeah, and the top fifteen cars or twenty, the twenty, the grid is separated by one second.
2: Yeah, yeah, and that's funny. one of the guy. One of the other engineers here, he races MX5s, mm. and uh, the videos he shows me on on Monday after he comes back. I think they're just brilliant. It's just like he's having the best fun ever in something that costs five grand. Um, And the racing's close. And sometimes he's on an up. Sometimes he's on a down in terms of a a result. But um, it always looks like it's been competitive, compact racing, which is, you go indoor karting, it's so much fun. It doesn't matter how much race experience you've got. I don't think you'll find any driver Pro driver that wouldn't go indoor karting, and say it's just the most basic fun in terms of it's real fun, real racing, real fun, yeah. and it's really enjoyable.
0: Yeah, because the more expensive it gets, there's just all these other factors that come into it
2: because yeah. of the fact it's expensive. Yeah, exactly, and and you know you can get bigger gaps between people have got a reasonable budget and a big budget, and then go yeah. testing and all that stuff. So yeah, I, I you know there's the MX-5 Championship, there's that Fun Cup and mm. Citroen C1. You know, I've done they're, they're, some of the C1 stuff. Have you done I'm- it?
0: It's wicked. I've spa, done Spa 24 Hour twice and Silverstone
2: once, and right. it's, it's the most fun. It's just so much fun. Yeah, and, and it looks it. And there's so many drivers I have to speak to that we should do that one day, yeah. and it's on the list. You know, there, There's still a few racetracks I want to go and race at, but in terms of a career point, I'm, I feel pretty much like <laughs> I've, I've done a lot of things yeah. and I've had a chance to drive lots of cool cars. But now it's like, I really want to go and do the Fun Cup. I really want to go and do the C1. Yeah. I probably want to go and do an MX5 race as well because it just looks, it, it goes back to the core of what our sport's about, which is just the pure enjoyment of racing a car and enjoyment. And it's, it doesn't have to be expensive to be able to go and do that.
0: 100%. 100%. I, one of the things I wanted to ask winning Le Mans versus winning ELMS. Or like w, the WEC Championship. They, yeah. Is, does one sit higher than the other? Or is uh, Le Mans just like such a beast that...
2: Well, I think it's always nice to win a championship. Mm. So winning the European Championship, it was great. You know, I've not won that many championships over the years. So that was a, a, a bit of a highlight for me. Le Mans is... A win at Le Mans is, is just a, a full-on career highlight. So... You know, the 2007 race, there was huge pressure at that one uh, to get the first win for Aston Martin. And then eight felt no pressure. So we, we went there as like the current champions and it was you know just nice to be able to sort of back-to-back it before um, the end of the GT1 program with Aston Martin. And then in 2017 with the GTE car, it was the last year without uh, at the current advantage Vantage at the time. And it won all the other races in, in World Endurance Championship, but it hadn't won Le Mans. So, to finally get you know the, the final piece of the jigsaw yeah. for that car was was lovely. The top step at Le Mans, there is no other podium I don't think like it. As I've never been on a Grand Prix podium, and mm. never will. From all the podiums I've been on, that is the most special, like incredible to be up there, and, and very humbling experience as well. So I would say the the championship is built up of. A number of factors and performances and results over a year, and you win it, and it's like, yes, yes, that's a good, a good, good feeling. But the battle of Le Mans and the instant, you, you know, um, satisfaction of being on the top step of, of the podium—I don't think I think I think it's always the mm. wins that will outweigh a championship Yeah. Um, as, a, as a, a single point of enjoyment. Um, and you know that that whole thing of, of being on the podium at Le Mans even if you're second or third is is amazing and then obviously the top step just really sort of is a special moment and the, obviously they didn't have that experience this year because no crowds there but all the years I've been there the pit lane is just full the racetrack to the side of the pit lane is yeah. full of people the Aston Martin flags are flying you can see your team you know they're, they're in the front rows of the big crowd and yeah, Everyone's fairly emotional anyway after a 24-hour race. Yeah. So, um, it, yeah, it's just a wonderful celebration that, that stays with you forever. Yeah,
0: uh, that must be such an amazing, amazing thing. Why is it such a different beast,
2: 24 hours versus 12? Um, uh, the obvious extra length of time, it, you makes it harder. Um, I think that going through the night, uh, and the things that go on at night that are, you know, the emotions of what goes on during the night as well. And, you know, definitely 24-hour racing, you know, a good number of years ago was more about looking after the car to make it last 24 hours. Now the cars are are running like sprint cars and are able to be pushed that hard all the way through. Um, so it's a different type of, of racing. I can remember like interviews with Sterling Moss and how he didn't actually really like Le Mans. Yeah. And we got one of the, the, the people that was involved with Aston Martin during that period came along and, and gave our team a, a, a bit of a, a chat about their experience. And it was only after his, his sort of um, story of, of how they went racing where you know, that year in 1959 when Aston White won, Sterling, Moss and his team were basically told to just drive their car flat out, um, uh, flat out to, to, knowing that it would break.
0: Yeah.
2: And the other two cars were set with predetermined times that they were to stick to. Okay. Knowing that the car would only survive at that pace. Um, so I can understand like, Sir Sterling's um, frustration because if you had to drive to a pace, that would be fairly...
0: fairly slow or
2: whatever. Yeah, yeah. not so exciting. But now it's the opposite. It, you know, it's like as the practice sessions goes on, you're told from, you know, first lap, hit everything you're going to hit in the race. You know, every curve that you want to take, take it. Because so we need to understand that if there's going to be an issue. Yeah. Because by the time we do the race, you're either going to be told not to hit that car curve or not to hit that one or got To use this part of the track, but then you drive it as fast as you possibly can. Um, and, and that's you know, looking at our race in 17, it was uh flag flag sprint, and and this year, the same with the Aston Martin of, of 97 and and the, the Ferrari, it was just an all out sprint the whole way through the race, and uh, you know, it just makes it a little bit more rewarding when it's been a proper fight. Um, you know, there's, there's times I've had races where not even you, you haven't had success. But the fight has been so enjoyable, and, and there's other times when you've been on the top step. But it's like there was no—we we were gifted that win. Yeah. And okay, it's nice to have the win, but the trophy doesn't really—it doesn't. There's no meaning to it because it, it was—it was one it of those or... uh, gifted races. So yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: When you're doing like a long stint or you know extended bit of racing, do you get into this sort of like flow state where you're almost like?
2: Not so Zen-like. No.
1: <laughs> Definitely
2: <laughs> not Zen-like. <laughs> um, uh, it, it becomes really dot-to-dot. Dot. That's how I would... I don't know if every driver's like that, but it's, you know, you, you, you build a rhythm for the circuit and you'll know that that's where a brake, that's where a turn in, mm. and you're always making fine adjustments for tyre wear and fuel load, etc. But you, you're trying to keep that consistency and you've got a you know, you know what your lap time is. And you're trying to keep as close to that as you possibly can um, with the inconsistency of, of traffic. Um, and you, you have to be honest, sometimes you do a crap lap and it's like, ah, oh, okay, I've lost three tenths there because I, I just got my braking wrong for yeah. for whatever, corner, tetrouge rouge or something. But you're trying to keep that consistency because after the race, you, you know, we get so much information given back to us about our performances yeah, as, as drivers, but as the team, as, you know, what the car's been like compared to the competitors. And the matrix for you know your performance is not necessarily who got the fastest lap, but it, who did the most consistent fast laps right, yeah. and what was your average, basically. Mm. There's always the hero lap, but you're wanting to make sure you're in the top average all the time because then you've done a good job. And if you can do that every time you get in the car, then you've contributed really well to what the result is. There'd be other guys that would... I haven't really seen it in the the current crop with Aston Martin, but there'll be other guys that you go up against and their thing is, oh, I just want to be a hero and get that fastest lap. (laughs) Um, And it's like, yeah, well, that's not really the objective. It's like to win. It's like who's going to do the fastest stint the whole way through the race and that's going to give us as a team the the performance. So I think quite often guys that come across from single-seaters or or whatever where it's it's one driver one car type racing it just takes a bit of time to to adapt to the bigger picture um some people get it straight away some people do get it eventually and there's others who never get it and generally they're the ones who don't have a long career in in sports car racing
0: yeah yeah it's an an interesting concept that like i've had it on when you look at let's say the 24 hour C1 stuff, it's a completely different end of the spectrum. But if you look at the average lap time, including a normal length of pit stop for the race, it's not that fast. Obviously you have to maintain that for 24 hours, but essentially like one bad lap knocks away 10 fast laps.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it it is like that. It is like a spin suddenly, you know, if you spin, let's say it's 10 seconds and you're doing 40 laps, it's going to take you that whole stint just to make it up, maybe. Um, yeah. Well, you won't make it up. You're still going to be 10 seconds down on what you could have done, but it's the same with pit stops. You know, The guys, they practice so much knowing that half a second each stop is suddenly during a race. That's 12 and a half seconds you've just given yeah. away. So from that point of view it's it's the accumulation of time that you're always trying to minimise whether it's mistakes uh, pit stops fueling all of those things in a 24 hour race they're so critical to the overall big picture
0: yeah because at this end of the spectrum you're racing for like tenths a lap
2: yeah yeah I mean yeah it it is tenths of a lap because all the cars are now bopped to such a close sort of proximity to each other now, which is great. Um, the drivers are all you know, great professional racing drivers, really on the top of their game. And they are fighting, when you think it's a three minute 50 lap round <laughs> the modern GTE, and they're scrapping over a tenth or two tenths of a lap. Well, that's the thing. Three tenths round there. Uh, it's generally 14 laps in a stint. So suddenly you're, you're giving away four and a half seconds an hour if you're three tenths off the pace or you've lost three tenths somewhere and it's it adds up you know and you can see that's where the gaps start to fall because it is only a tenth and yeah. three tenths is a blink of an eye but 14 laps it's suddenly four and a half seconds so and then you
0: get to the end of the race and these cars are like nose to tail after 24 hours you're like how has this happened
2: it's weird and one of the it does happen at Le Mans and it happens quite often but the American racing, it always happens just because of the way their their regulations are and the way they, they do the full course yellows and the, and mm-hmm. all of that safety car period. It, it promotes end of race combat, which right. is you know, really good fun. You know, you do Daytona five hundred. It's like yeah, you're racing for twenty hours, but the real stuff kicks off at like with four hours to go. Because um, yeah. even you know, there's people there that can be five laps down after two hours, but. Every safety car, you gain a lap, you can yeah, get that back. back. Yeah. And I like that because it just keeps the racing tight all the way through. And some people say, well, it's a bit fake, isn't it? And it's like, well, not really. <laughs> it's just making sure we're all go racing. That's it, you know. Um, it's horrible when someone has an issue so early in a race. You would nearly go, well, five if it's not work or something, but you, you, you could say, well, if five laps down, you're never going to get that back. Yeah. So why do another twenty-two hours of racing? Because that's just a load like, yeah, waste of waste money. Waste of money, yeah. Where if you've got a chance to get back, then you're going to keep going. Most people though do keep going. I don't know why. You know, they can be think... ten or twenty laps down, and it's like, yeah, we're still going to go to the flag. I guess, what? I guess, to get the finish.
0: Yeah, to get the finish, and you've sunk all this money's gone anyway. You, you might as well.
2: Yeah, there's still a bit of a saving by not going around, you know, true, fuel and tyres and all that sort of stuff. So uh, engine mileage and bits above. But yeah, you know, the good thing is like, like with the American stuff is like you've got a chance all the way to the end and it keeps the cars on the, on the track, which makes it more exciting.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, at some point in time, you started
2: doing some development driving on the road cars. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, Relatively new, um, I guess four or five years. First real program was the Vulcan track day mm. car. But now, you know, I'm, I'm doing more with Rogo and Vantages and, and DB11s, EBSs and, and a little bit with the DBX. Generally, the bit I'm doing is finding what the, the car performs like right on the limit, mm. um, specifically for sort of a bit of uh, circuit knowledge, really. Aston Martin have got an amazing sort of team under... Matt Becker for the vehicle dynamics, um, a lot of really really good drivers in the engineering department with all the experience of what is needed to make a good road car because yeah. that's what they've been doing. You know that's their their, their skill set, um, but occasionally they just want to make sure that what what's the car like right at the limit on a track, uh, and that's my little role uh, with with Aston Martin. Uh, the Vulcan, I had more of an involvement because it was more of a circuit beast anyway. Yeah. You know, just to make sure we had a car that was really user friendly, um, gave the owners the the sort of confidence to sort of push that type of car. Um, so that was a really enjoyable program to be involved with from the word go, and and also the Valkyrie. Now you know that's a road car. It's getting lots of the the expertise with the road car development uh, drivers. Chris Goodwin is the the main development driver on that, and so I've had and involvement at various stages. I've got another two days with the car this week, and I think I'm in the car for five days next week. So, But again, it's more the track days, track performance that I get involved with. And as time goes on and I'm like less involved with like racing mm. of cars, I'll get more involvement with the, the road car development. And it's really interesting because a race car, it's fairly basic what it has to do. It's got to be yeah. able to pull away. It's got to be able to do 60K down the pit lane and then once it leaves the pit lane it's got to go as fast as it possibly can for as long as it can without breaking down yeah they're pretty basic sort of <laughs> requirements and then you get a road car which this is the bit that's really uh, been an education for me is they have to do everything you know they have to be able to start at minus 20 they've got to hit emissions they've got to be able to drive down a high street in I don't know 110 degrees yeah. um, uh and uh stop, start, stop, start, stop, start. They've got to be able to do a load of burnouts in case the owner wants to be doing that. It's got to be able to reverse up a hill, because the guy, the person who owns the car might live on a like a big state with the garage up the top of it. It's it's a million things that a race car never has to do, and all of it's gotta be tried and tested and 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 you know optimized. And that's the bit that's been really interesting for me. Um, to see the amount of work that goes into an Vantage, a DB11, a DBS, a DBX, and the Valkyrie. You know, the Valkyrie has still got to achieve everything that the, the Vantage has got to be able to achieve. And then it's got to be able to go on a racetrack and be able to do the performance and hit the targets that have been set for that car. And so it's an incredible piece of engineering. And um, yeah, it's exciting for me to be involved. You know, I've loved it, you know. You still walk into the garage, having now seen the car for a couple of years, yeah. uh, still walk into the garage and it still blows you away with, with the, how it looks, but then the detail. When you get up close, it's the detail. And we had a, an event November last year where the owners were able to come and see the car perform. Yeah. And I was talking to one of the owners and you know, these, quite a few of them have got big car collections. And I said, well, one with this car, if I owned this car, if I was going to be lucky enough to own this car, my garage would have a glass uh, floor so I can go under it and All look right. up at it because I said the, the, what's underneath, because I've seen one of the cars on, yeah. on the ramps, is it's incredible. You know, the, the, the aerodynamics under that car and the fact that everything's packaged in such in such a way. Uh, you will look at it from the top and admire the design mm. and, and be in awe of it, but you will equally be underneath it going, this is just <laughs> incredible and not many people are going to get to do that. That's so so that'd be the, I'd order a Valkyrie and a garage with a glass door, uh, floor, nice. just so I could appreciate the top and the bottom. Or at the very
0: least, a mirrored floor.
2: Well, I don't think the mirror floor would give it the right sort of... You wouldn't you, get you, enough. Need to, you need to be able to view it all in one go, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, so.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Have one suspended from the ceiling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Has it been uh, so? Those two cars, Valkyrie and Vulcan. Presumably, they are very different beasts in terms of to each other. To each other, and like, I guess they're ultimately they're angled at consumers to be driven rather like sort of ish Joe public has got to be able to
2: drive them, not just professional racing drivers. Yeah, definitely. The Vulcan was designed as a amazing track day car, and but it had to be a. a, There's no point giving a non-professional race driver who doesn't go racing, someone who doesn't go racing but enjoys going track days and stuff like that. There's no point giving them uh, a GT3 car which is been optimized and is on the limit. You you know, they're going to drop the car. You know, that's that's one of those things. So the Vulcan had to be something that was amazing. Visually, uh, inside the car is just incredible. To, it's not like a race car inside; it's more like a spaceship inside. Um, but it needed to give the drivers confidence, you know, to be able to extract the the performance that that car has got. So it was very clear from the word go under David King what what target is, and uh, um, and Fraser, the the sort of uh, project manager of that car, very clear what we were trying to achieve with it. And you know, it's a it's an easy car to, to get hold of. It's an easy car to drive and get close to the limit. It's enjoyable, you know. That's the that's the thing. And the V12, just amazing, amazing sound. You've got the best soundtrack you could possibly get. Yeah. And then, obviously, that only had one job to do that on a racetrack. So yeah. it didn't have all the other stuff that road cars have to do, which the Valkyrie does have to achieve. But uh, I'd say they are different animals purely because of. The fact that the Valkyrie has to be a has to be a grown-up road car as well, yeah. you know? And y- there's definitely things within the Valkyrie that are uh, are required to be a road car that would. And it's not a compromise of design because the design was to be, a, it's going to be a, road a road car. Road, yeah, yeah that, that is so. It's it's fitting the box. It had to to fit in, but that means it is different from what the Vulcan's um, sort of design project had to be. Yeah.
0: Are you a little bit sad that we're not going to see a, a Valkyrie GTR at Le
2: Mans? might,
0: uh, I guess, but
2: uh, unlikely. Yeah, I mean, it would have been wonderful to see that, that come to, to light and to see Valkyries racing on a race circuit. And, and maybe, that, maybe there's an option in the future. I think it's really difficult at the moment for the organisers to get the right regulations. It looks like LNDH is coming across, yeah. which I think is perfect. You know, if you look at the success of GT3, racing around the world and how many manufacturers have been able to get involved in sports car racing because of that, that class. Yeah. I think LMDH will be the same. it will be a global platform that can be used in America, Europe, world, Asia, whatever, you know, there'd be this platform that enables more manufacturers to get involved and to have cars that are capable of winning Le Mans outright. Now there's still quite a few companies that are keen on the hypercar class. So if, if they can get those, the balance between the two classes to be as even as possible, then then hopefully there's still those guys that want to go out there, manufacturers that want to go out there and, and bring on their hypercars and, and demonstrate them as well and and have a chance of obviously outright wins as well. But it, it's always hard when there's two classes that are capable yeah. of, of overall success because if one's winning, the other class is like, oh, hang on, the... the the mechanism for the balance is not quite right and it, it's going to go like that and so it's a difficult situation to be in but I do believe LMDH is a is a good package for sports car racing uh, on the whole. Yeah
0: and I'm, for me I, I, I love seeing cars that have a road element I love prototypes as well and that sort of thing and I've got a little bit of experience driving prototype type stuff and it's fun but for most people they want to be able to see your whether it's your Vantage or whatever, and then a GTE race car. And if yeah. we have these crazy hypercars, if they are also then the fastest race cars, that's just quite a cool. That's, it's a great thing for the brand overall, I think.
2: Yeah, I, think, I mean, that's I, I do think that's one of the things that LMDH has, has sort of answered, is the fact that the, the manufacturers can stamp their own like signature. Yeah. On the, you look at the like the Mazda and the Acura, and the Cadillac out in America, they all look really different, and they, they've got the look of the manufacturer about them. Yeah. It would be lovely to have all the manufacturers all producing hypercars that they could go and race. But again, they've got to do some sort of balance of performance. Yeah. If it's anything that comes from a road car product, you have to have balance of performance. Anything that is a clean sheet race car is set of regulations. And that should be it. And it's then down to the you know the teams and the designers to get it right. And you know, balance of performance gets a really hard knock, but I, I can't see how our sport can be anything other yeah. than using balanced performance. And you know, the, the organizers are getting better and better at, at getting it right. And it's a necessity of, of, of multi-manufacture racing. Otherwise you'd have a one-mate class, you know, especially when it's customer based, because mm. effectively one of those road cars would naturally be a better race car. And yep. then if that was the case, then sure. everyone would buy the one that was going to be the one that had the best chance to win in something. Sort of so by having this mechanism in place, every manufacturer can produce a car that will have a chance of winning, which is great. More manufacturers, more racing, more drivers, more events. It's just win-win all the way around yeah. for one little and... compromise, which is this horrible word, balance of performance. Which everyone hates. Like I think... Uh, yeah yeah it, not everyone anybody. hates it, when, it, it, it's, it's, not can... favour. when yeah. it's not your favor. when it's not your favor, everyone hates it but it ebbs and flows some days it's like we were amazing <laughs> but at that point they no one go oh, but we did have the best pop out there sort of thing it's yeah. like people only moan about it when it's not not your day really yeah totally
0: no it's very cool well i normally wrap these up with five questions great so oh. uh I'll, I'll hate you with them. Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? And in your case, you can do a race if you want.
2: Uh, I, t- I mean, there's lot, lots and lots of races, and it would be easy to pick out the Le Mans wins. But I, one of the most, the ones that really stood out was a race in Brazil World Endurance Championship. I think it was 2012. Uh, my teammate at the time was Stefan Booker and we had a six-hour race against um, Ferrari. And we were fighting for tents. Every pit stop is either our team got us ahead or they got us ahead. And then on track, we basically at no point were we more than a second apart. And it was an amazingly intensive race. And on that occasion, we didn't win. But like I was saying earlier, it's not always the, the winning. It's the, the fight, the enjoyment yeah. of the fight. And it was just an epic, epic battle. And um, yeah, I'd say that was probably in the sports car stuff. That was the most enjoyable, not result, but just driving experience. Was of it? journey, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no,
0: definitely. Okay. Five-car garage, unlimited value.
2: Oh, yeah. well, I, see, yeah. I've always thought if I won the lottery, I'd, I'd spend 23 million on 23 cars. But, you know, <laughs> one, one would be 100. 23 is my lucky number. That's the only reason. Yeah. Um, so I would have in my garage, I'd have a 177. Oh yes, like that. Uh, a black F forty. Mm. A Mercedes. I should say a three hundred SL, but I actually prefer the little one ninety SL. So I'm up to three. I'd have a Porsche three five six A. Nice. And uh, you got
0: a daily, or is one of these your daily already?
2: None of these are dailies. These are all like you know Sundays. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're 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 the Sunday cars. I wouldn't yeah, I wouldn't put a, a daily in. But if I've only got five cars, I'm I'm having uh, and uh, finally I'd probably either I think I'd go for a DB4 uh, GT. Nice. Mm, I've got I've got limitless money.
0: Yeah, unlimited.
2: Okay, a DB4 Segato then. Yeah, that's a bit nicer. Huh? Yeah, so yeah, I'd go for that. So, there, that'd that's be a good it. bunch. They're generally older. You know, I yeah. quite I like the older cars. Um, I love, I love. I'm surrounded every day with new stuff. I really enjoy driving the, like with the Goodwood and stuff. So I enjoy that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, cool. Right. If you can only drive one car for the rest of your life, you're allowed a 500 pound banger on the side. If you've got family, oh, right? You
2: know. One car, it'd be the DB4 Zagato. Yeah, I just nice. like. I really I love the styling of it, and having driven a couple of the not Zagato but DB4s. Yeah, I just think they're just the compared to a modern car. They're not brilliant. (laughs) But in terms of just pure enjoyment of driving along, I think they'd be
0: amazing. Yeah, Yeah, totally. I got to drive um, the GTO Engineering 250 short wheelbase revival, essentially a tool room copy, the other day. Uh, That was like a competition spec car on the road and just for like half an hour. And it was, I mean, it was utterly awful in all the ways that you would measure like modern cars, but it was just an unbelievable experience just yeah. everything about it was just uh, kind of hilarious and the noise and the, the gear shift and all of the and stuff. Beautiful looking car. And and it, looks, it looks amazing. Car. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: But yeah, you get, and it's, it's weird, isn't it? Cause you can have these things where you could go, if I tick all of these boxes of metrics of like what should make it good, doesn't necessarily mean it's the best driving experience.
2: 100%. You know, ultimately I think car, modern day cars are getting too perfect. so they lose the character of what driving was about and maybe perfect is great for 90% of the people that are owning cars Mm. for one job to go A to B yeah and and perfect's great but for people that actually enjoy the driving element then I think not perfect is actually perfect
0: totally yeah Yeah. (laughs) okay most undervalued car at the moment
2: (sighs) I uh, need to swap on my, uh, on my road cars. What
0: if I drew a often, This is often the case with racing drivers. Like, I don't know anything about road cars.
2: Yeah. Well, I know about Aston road cars, but yeah. um, they're not undervalued. <laughs> uh, what would be, what higher cars have I had recently? Ooh. I'll tell you what, any American uh, high car isn't great. <laughs> I don't. It's like I struggle to stay in the lines on the motorways or the freeways out there. Yeah. I don't know. But they, they're like more like sailing than I. Like, I came off the flight this morning or yesterday, and uh, I'm like, yeah, I can easily keep within the lines in the UK. Why can I not do that in America? They just sort yeah. of wonderful. Um, so it would not be any uh, American it's spec undervalued, so people. like underappreciated in
0: in Sorry. price, Und- like underappreciated in price. It's tricky. It is tricky.
2: I, I, ooh, I, don't know. I don't know. No, I'm going to have to miss that one. I can't. Okay. I can't give you a. De- I cannot give you a decent answer. Okay, I'll now. give
0: you an interim interim question. When a customer is going to get their Valkyries?
2: Can't answer that one either. That's oh. a, where's that? I can't, yeah. I, I'm not in charge of that bit. You need don't to go know. and speak to a grown-up.
0: I know. Fair enough. Okay. F- the final question. What is the most interesting car to you at the moment?
2: Um. I'd say currently, right now, is one of the little projects we're doing with Advantage. So it's for the next iteration, and it's okay. really nice because uh, I'm getting to go to the noise life, and we're we're trying lots of different things with the current spec to make sure it's a obviously an evolution mm. um, of of the current one. And it's really like this is more me getting more experience under Matt Becker and, and his team to yeah. sort of really try and find the the areas of the current car that are Capable of being improved, and it's for me. I, you know, I'm really enjoying that experience, just because nothing's perfect. Because as soon as you finish one thing, it's like, okay, we're on to the next. But you can go back and and make some uh, improvement. Time always gives you the yeah. chance to make improvement. So uh, yeah, I'd say that's the that's that one.
0: Oh, cool, cool. Well, there we go. Thanks very much. Thanks easy. very much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, no problem at all. That was easy.
2: It's, it's been a good one. That was
0: uh, a <laughs> one hour fifty six minutes.
2: Nice. Well, that's good because in three minutes I've got another Zoom call.
0: Oh, okay. Well, I will. I will lead you to it. Because <laughs> I saw looking up, going, "All right, yeah. Well, I should be all right." <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh man, brilliant!
2: Well, thank, thank you so very much. Cheers. Thanks. All right,
1: take care. Cheers.
2: Bye.